Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Uh, we'll deem to correct the esteemed Dr. Hildreth on one thing. I am the past president of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is the most coveted title in the Southern Baptist Convention is past uh, president. Um, let me reiterate what he said, that um, this is actually a very, very, where you're sitting was a very important part of, um, of God's call on my life, his direction, the things I learned about preaching, about the gospel, about um, the 2.2 billion people that had never heard the name of Jesus. I, I think I get uh, emotional thinking about how much God did in my life when I sat where um, you sat, not what feels like not that long ago, probably seems like a long time to you because you're like, I wasn't even born back then. But uh, to me and Dr. Hildreth, who is much older than I am, um, it doesn't seem uh, like that long ago. I hope, I'm glad you're here at chapel. Um, I hope that, that your attendance here will continue. I have no self-interest in saying that um, because uh, to my knowledge, I won't be here again this semester unless somebody cancels at the last minute and then I'm Dr. Aiken's go-to guy. Uh, nine out of 10 times if you see me here, it's because somebody better than me canceled the night before. Uh, but I, so I don't have any personal interest in saying that uh, other than to say that um, this was, um, I mean, I love my classes. Don't want to take anything away from those. Um, but um, the reason that um, I became a pastor and a missionary was embodied in, in, um, in what I experienced in chapel. And so I hope that you will make that a regular part of your experience here. Let me also reiterate what he said about the free lunch afterwards. Um, free lunch is always good, but uh, today I think even better than the lunch are some of the opportunities you may get. Um, uh, that we, one of the things that will be there is our church. So we have a thing called the Summit Institute. And if you are uh, looking to just grow in ministry and are thinking serving on a, on a church staff somewhere, it's one of the best things that we do um, at our church. It's just a ministry mentorship training program where you get really involved in the leadership of our church and are mentored by pastors and leaders. Um, they will have representatives that are there um, at that lunch, the North American Mission Board. Um, uh, we'll also have um, a team of people there if you're thinking that church planting or being part of a church planting team is in your future. They can help you get connected to residencies um, uh, like ours, not just ours, but like ours um, that uh, can put you in uh, some of the best, um, most multiplying churches in the United States. And so it's a great way to begin that conversation. And then, of course, um, for the varsity level uh, Christians and those of you that are sensing uh, perhaps that call to go overseas, um, there'll be representatives there for that. So I hope you will join us there um, um, uh, at this at this lunch. Um, it's one of the things I, I really love doing every year. It's at the Jackie Man Simpsons Mission Building. Uh, so I hope to see you there. Uh, if you got your Bibles, and I hope that you brought your Bibles, if you take them out and what, turn them on and uh, scroll down to Revelation 2. Uh, the little Baptist church I grew up in, my pastor used to say the sweetest sound he ever heard was the sound of the ruffling of the pages as people open their Bibles after he said, open your Bibles to. Um, as a pastor of a church full of millennials and Gen Zers, I will tell you, I never, ever get to hear that sound. Uh, I get to see the warm glow of God's word on people's faces, and I'll take it. Uh, but uh, you'll get it out, Revelation chapter 2. I agreed to come and preach at this chapel probably a year ago and was told it would be missions week. I was told two weeks ago that my assignment would be to preach from the book of Revelation. Uh, and so um, that's what we call, Dr. Aiken, I know you're listening, the bait and switch. Uh, so I'm excited about Revelation 2, but it was not what I was thinking about. 
um, leading up to this, but after getting into it, I thought, man, what a great text. There's so much in here, so much we got to leave on the table, but we're going to jump in. You know, of course, that Revelation 2 are the letters written to the churches, or at least um, a portion of them. Um, there are a number of exegetical questions that surround these letters. Um, like whether John primarily meant these letters as counsel to one individual church that we can learn from, or whether they are for all churches in all times, um, or if each of the seven just represents a different era of Christian history, and so you can kind of move through the seven letters and see different eras of history represented. My own perspective is that each of these is first, of course, written to a specific church. He had a local congregation in mind, and that the counsel given to various churches is going to be more relevant to certain churches in certain seasons. Um, but it is also that, while you couldn't say that only this church applies to one whole era, while you may not say that, I think it is true that different ones of these seven churches can be more relevant to various chapters of Christian history. The two that, that, that people most often associate with or assign to our era are the church at Ephesus, of course, uh, the, the you've lost your first love uh, church, and then of course uh, the church of Laodicea, uh, which is in Revelation 3, and that is the, you know, you're so lukewarm, wish you were hot or cold, I want to spit, spew you out of my mouth. Um, those are the ones that are applied to our era most often, but I actually want to preach out of the letter to the church at Smyrna. Because I believe that it is sneaky relevant to our particular moment in history, and particularly as Southern Baptists, as Southern Baptists. Um, Church at Smyrna reminds us, this letter is going to remind us that what often feels easy in the church is not necessarily right. And what often feels difficult is not necessarily wrong. This letter sort of reads like a good news, bad news, surprise story. I uh, like the story I heard about the little bird that um, flew south for the winter, but unfortunately got a late start because of some things that he was trying to take care of. And so because he got a late start, he got caught in a snowstorm. The storm was so bad that ice formed on his wings as he was in the air and he couldn't even fly. So he begins to crash, he zoomed down to the earth for a crash landing and he, and he, and he couldn't get back up and he thought, great, now I'm just going to lie here and freeze to death. But suddenly... Suddenly, out of nowhere, a cow comes lumbering along and sees the bird and just, don't know how to say this politely, but just takes a flop right there on top of his head. And at first he thinks, well, that's just gone from bad to worse. The cow just dropped manure on me. But then he realized that the manure was warm, and so it warmed his wings, and it thawed out his wings, and he could flap them again, and he could fly. And he got so excited that he started to chirp and, and sing, but this attracted a cat who comes along and eats the bird. You can learn three very important lessons about your life from this story, all of which you're going to see right here in this letter to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2. Lesson number one. Lesson number one, not everybody who drops manure on you is your enemy. Lesson number two, not everyone who digs you out is your friend. And lesson number three, when you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful just to keep your little chirper shirt shut, chirper shut and wait it out and wait it out. Revelation chapter 2. Listen to what the Spirit says to the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, verse 9, I know your affliction, and I know your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, 
but they're a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. You will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, because the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. The city of Smyrna, today called Izmir, um, in central Turkey, was a beautiful, prosperous port city that the Romans had turned into a commercial hub for the entire empire. If you've ever had a chance to go to Izmir, it is absolutely, stunningly, breathtakingly beautiful. In fact, it is the only one of the seven cities that are mentioned in these seven letters that is still in existence as a city and not just a pile of ruins. The city got its name for a perfume that is created by the crushing of the fruit of a small thorn bush. You've probably heard of myrrh. Myrrh is a common thing in the Bible. That is a substance. That is the substance from which Smyrna got its name. It turns out that myrrh, a beautiful scent derived by crushing the fruit of the flower of a thorn bush, is a pretty good metaphor for this church. This was a church made beautiful, a church that is going to give off the fragrance of Christ, not despite suffering, but because of suffering. The Apostle John notes in verse 9 that the church was known for two things. Do you see it? It was known for persecution and poverty. And undoubtedly, these things would have been linked because the only reason somebody in such a prosperous location as Smyrna would have been poor was that they were the subject of relentless persecution. Their commitment to Christ, and I'm speculating here, but I think it's valid, their commitment to Christ made them lose business deals. It made them get denied access to certain pieces of property. It got them canceled out of public events. It made people have to forfeit public office. Interestingly, this is one of only two churches out of John's seven churches about which Jesus says nothing negative. The other one is Philadelphia, a church that is known for its zealous commitment to missions. You see, it seems that two things in a church really delight the heart of God, patient faithful endurance and suffering, and radical commitment to the Great Commission. The persecution in Smyrna seems to have come from two places. Uh, indication is from the culture around them. Smyrna prided itself as the hub of emperor worship. It was home to the temple that they called Dea Roma, literally Rome as a goddess, built in, in, in honor of the emperor Tiberius, where Tiberius was worshipped as the son of God. If you've ever studied the religious context of Rome, you know that Rome did not care what God you worshiped. They didn't care what God you worshiped so long as you acknowledged that Caesar was the Lord of all of them. In the Pantheon, where they had the statues of all the various gods, there was a little emblem on top of the Pantheon. You can still see the remnants of it. If you go to Rome, you, um, you see a little emblem up there that says, Caesar, the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. In fact, church history says that toward the end of the first century, not long after this letter was written, um, that, 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 that the Romans, in an attempt to make peace with this growing Christian community, offered to put a statue of Jesus in the pantheon. And of course, the Christians turned it down and said, we can't do that unless you tear that emblem off the top. Because Caesar's not king of kings and lord of lords, and he's not the son of God, Jesus is. And so it wasn't because they worshiped Jesus that they got into so much persecution. It's because they refused to acknowledge the validity of other ways of salvation. And they refused to acknowledge Caesar's 
lordship over all of it, that they became the subject of relentless persecution, even referred to as atheists and anarchists, because they were, in their view, attempting to overthrow the entire order. So that was one place of persecution, but that one is rather expected, if you ask me. The more surprising place, the more discouraging one, was within the God-fearing community. Again, look at verse 9. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews. Jews were supposed to have been God's people. Yet they turn out to be the biggest persecutors of the believers in Smyrna. I think the hardest thing to reckon with as a pastor is the persecution that comes from inside your church. From those that you know ought to stand with you who do not. I know many of you are preparing for ministry, but some of you already know what I'm talking about. That deacon, that staff member that you have invested so much time with that turns on you. The Absalom to your David, the Demas to your Timothy, the John Mark to your Paul. That person whose belief structure you share so much in common with, who turns on you because you won't acknowledge or bow down to their idol. I'll tell you that having been, what, 20 years now, I celebrate our 20, my 20th year at the Summit Church this year, it used to be that most of the criticism I got from the religious community came from so-called Christians on the left who criticized our naive commitment to inerrancy or our supposed clinging to outdated sexual ethics. But what has been more surprising and hurt even more has been the criticism that started to come from our friends on the right. Those whose belief systems I share so much in common with, who could not bear to have their own political idols challenged. 2020 was a difficult year for, for many, many reasons. But maybe for me as pastor and as SBC president, the most difficult was that 2020 revealed that for a lot of people in our churches, their primary identity was political it wasn't that it wasn't also christian they were also christian but the primary identity was political we know that because a lot of church people left their churches not just some at church but a lot of them because of some disagreement over a relatively small political disagreement at least small in light of the gospel and in light of eternity well you didn't say enough about this particular cultural issue so I'm leaving. You said too much, so I'm leaving. And I would say to these people, some of whom had been at our church for years, for a decade, and I would say, we agree on every point of gospel doctrine. We believe in the gospel. We believe in the authority and inerrancy of the Bible. We believe in the sanctity of life and marriage. I married your children. I walked with you through the tragedy of a death of a loved one. And now you are leaving because you disagreed because we said too much, one too many things about George Floyd. Or we said not enough about him. Or because we asked you to wear a mask for a season. Or because we did not keep the mask mandate in place long enough. We Christians say that we hate cancel culture, but it was amazing to me how so many of us canceled our church over a relatively small disagreement. And I kind of look at that and I say, no wonder, because we pastors get to disciple our people about one hour a week, and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow get them for three hours a night. 
know, when the church gets in bed with politics, the church gets pregnant. And the offspring does not look like our Heavenly Father. It looks like the synagogue of Satan. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, and they are not. They're actually from the synagogue of Satan. They don't have satanic worship rituals. They don't put Satan on the roof. They don't sacrifice kittens. But they're from the synagogue of Satan. And I'll just tell you right now, and I realize I'm kind of cruising over this at about 30,000 feet, but when somebody tells you that just loving your neighbor, just being willing to listen, just taking a humble posture toward those who are hurting, just not being quick to speak, to try to listen twice as much as you're making declaration, when those things make you a liberal, you know you are listening to somebody out of step with the Spirit of Christ. Or when somebody tells you that your refusal to put biblical authority behind a good but secondary political issue, when that makes you a liberal, they are speaking out of the synagogue of Satan. I'm not saying they are necessarily from Satan or that they are not a Christian. Just that conflating allegiance to Jesus Christ with allegiance to secondary world powers is a tactic of our enemy. Now, when you get this kind of criticism, you always remain humble. Sometimes there's truth in it, and sometimes you can learn from it, even if it's not given in the right spirit. But the point I'm trying to make is that opposition doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. In fact, if I could be so bold, it probably means you're doing something right. In our particular culture, in this moment, when right and left are coming after you, that doesn't prove that you're not doing things right or that you don't have your convictions in place. It's probably a pretty good indicator, though, that you are doing things right. Jesus' opposition came from left and right. If we're going to stand with him in our day, we ought to expect it from both directions also. In fact, I'll say, when, when I served as SBC president, I used to ask our communications director, are both sides angry about this right now? And if the answer was yes, then I just assumed we were saying something right. If only one side was pleased, you're like, well, we can't be saying the right thing now. It was the, what was bewildering to this church. It was not the secular powers in Smyrna. It was those who said they were Jews, but are not. Jesus' counsel, verse 10, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? That's great news. But watch Jesus' explanation for why they should not be afraid. Watch this. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. You will experience affliction for 10 days. This is not the kind of do not fear message that I like to receive. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Why? First, you're about to suffer. Second, it's actually the devil that's going to do it. Third, he's going to throw you in prison. Fourth, it's going to last for 10 days. By the way, 10 days, 10 is a biblical metaphor for the maximum amount. Like he's going to throw you in prison and it's going to feel like forever. Verse 10, some of you are going to die. For some of you, you're never coming out. I'm like, when does the encouragement start? Can we just go ahead and like speed it, fast forward to that part? Verse 10, be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus' simple answer, don't be afraid. Because despite all this, I got the last word. Notice verse 8, I am the first and the last. I was there at the beginning and I'll be there at the end. Verse 8, I was dead and now I'm alive. In the midst of all this persecution, verse 10, even in the midst of endless suffering, I still hold the crown of life. I've got the last word. 
The power of the empire is just an illusion. It's just an illusion because you know the book of Proverbs. The heart of the king is like a river in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wants. Ephesians 1 says that he is working all things according to the counsel of his will, which means there is not one stray molecule in the entire universe. There's not one aberrant king. God is not sitting in heaven going, oh, Putin and the, the Kim Jong, whatever his name is, in North Korea. I, just, I, I didn't factor for the crazy people in those parts of the world. And I didn't think about this. And when nobody saw Donald Trump coming. And now we got no candidates on either side. And I've just, I've, he's not doing that. It's like there's not one stray molecule. And I'm actually rearranging the borders of nations and politics for the purpose of establishing my gospel and what looks like chaos to you is actually perfect harmony to me and you can be assured just like joseph was that even what the enemy intended for evil i'm actually intending for good i've heard it described before and you probably have to like like one of those tapestries you see in a european castle where you look at it and it's this beautiful ornate picture where not one single thread is out of place but then you go, you know, if you've ever had a tour guide to kind of pull back the tapestry, you look at the other side, and it looks like on the other side, this just chaotic mess of everything going everywhere. And you're like, how in the world? What is this just looks like somebody did it after they lost their mind? And then you flip it over, and you're like, it's perfect. What happens at the end of Revelation, what happens at the end of this letter is God says, here was your tapestry, and he flips it over, and it is the perfect face of Jesus Christ. Because I know that history will ultimately weave into a picture for his glory. I know that he's got a purpose for my particular strand, even though it feels like endless suffering. And because I know he stands at the end, I'm confident that he's got a plan in the present. You might remember the show um, 24. I mean, that probably dates. It was like so cool when I was your age. So 24, Jack Bauer. It was one of the first binge shows. I mean, there's all kinds of now, but back then, I was like one of the first ones. We didn't have streaming services. You had to get it on DVD. That was a late to the program because I'm sort of a late adopter on most things. And so I heard everybody talking about it, and I was like, I got to watch this. So watch season one, and I noticed that every night, you know, my wife and I were like, well, let's just watch another one, you know. So um, we got to where watching two a night. We get through season two. Now we're watching, you know, like I'm feeling bad, like, you know, not reading books anymore i'm just watching 24 um so uh, but you know the end chapter two ends in like this cliffhanger i'm like we got to get season three so i go out and i buy season three I, I this is not a joke we rented a place at the beach we sat inside the entire time never stepped foot on the beach one time and watched all of season three all 24 hours of season three in the space of about 36 hours that was all that we did that weekend and I remember um, I, I, I was about two-thirds of the way through season three. I don't know if you remember this. Um, and I'm totally blowing it. But you know what? It's been out for 25 years. Okay, deal with it. Okay, so um, in the middle of, like, season three, Jack Bauer, like, dies. Do you remember this? You're like, you're like I, I looked at Veronica. I was like, I think he just died. I think he died. Too. I don't know. that. Looks like he died. And I, I remember being confused, just like, this is a really odd twist to this show. But I'd already bought season four. And so I picked up season four, and I noticed that Jack Bauer's face is on the back of the box of season four. And I'm like, well, it can't be. He can't have died because he's right here at season four. So something here is not, it's just an illusion. Sure enough, you know, I don't know how they pulled it off, but Jack Bauer's not really dead. What happens as you're reading this book of Revelation is you are getting to the last chapter, and you're seeing that his face is still on the box. We get all the way through to the end of Revelation, and you're like, well, he's still the one standing in Revelation chapter 22, which must mean 
that he's in control of Revelation 2. And if his face is in Revelation 22, his hand is at work in Revelation 2. What I begin to understand is that God has a purpose, even in the difficult things, especially in the difficult things. The devil may be the agent of my suffering, but the Lord Jesus has a purpose in it, and his face is all over the final chapter of this book. Listen, this is still an unpopular teaching, not just in prosperity gospel circles, but in our circles. God brings salvation into the world through the suffering of the church. I'm all into prosperity. I love having a church that grows and flourishes, and I love celebrating things, so I'm not like a, a hater, okay? But I will just go ahead and tell you, God's preferred means of doing it is wounding his ministers and pastors, and it is through affliction. It is through persecution. It is through betrayal by those who feel the closest to you that God actually brings salvation into the church unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. It abides by itself. You've heard the famous line of A.W. Tozer, before God can use a man greatly, he has to hurt him very deeply. Jesus said in John 17 that as the Father sent him into the world, so he sends us. And what did the Father send him to do? He sent him to suffer. Paul said, I now am filling up in my body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I mean, on the surface, we get used to that phrase, but what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Who has the audacity to speak that way? Something is still lacking in Jesus. I thought he said it is finished. Yeah, Paul has the audacity to say there's something still lacking in Christ's afflictions. Because, as Martin Luther said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. And the means of their hearing about it is through the wounds of the church. If they're going to hear about the gospel in India and Southeast Asia, and if they're going to hear about it on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill, it's not going to come through my prosperity. It's not going to come because I wrote a great book or because I get invited to preach here at Southeastern. It is going to come through God's crushing a church like the church in Izmir, and as the myrrh begins to spread its perfume through that crushing, that is what brings the fragrance of Christ into the world. So whatever you're going through, don't be afraid. I can't promise you it's going to end quickly. It may last 10 days, but I can promise you his face shines through the final chapter and that there is not one stray molecule in all of the universe and not in your life. All of it is moving to his appointed end. He is the first and the last, and his ways will be accomplished. The arc of God's goodness in your life is almost always longer than you think it should be. I want it always to resolve quickly. But the arc is much longer than you and I want it to be, but it always moves toward goodness. Surely goodness and mercy following you all the days of life don't often feel like goodness and mercy following you all the days of your life, but it is at the end it is at the end when you see the first and the last that you see it all moved inevitably toward goodness. Steve Saint, you ever heard of Steve Saint? He's at the son of Nate Saint, who you probably have heard of, one of the infamous or the famous Alka Five, who was murdered on the beaches of Ecuador in the 1950s. There had been a particularly hostile tribe there called the Alka Indians that was untouched by civilization. And so five men and their wives, although their wives weren't on the beach that day, but they were Five men were called the Alka Five, Jim Elliott, 
name most famously associated, and Nate Sane tried to establish contact with him, and they were all murdered. Later, Nate's three-year-old son, Steve, was a part of a group after he'd grown up that went back to that same people and ended up making friends with them. He led to Christ the man that murdered his father, the actual man who speared to death his father. In fact, in one of the most remarkable grace stories that I've ever heard, he baptized the very man who killed his father, Menkai. And they adopted that man into his family as his kid's grandfather to replace the grandfather that he had murdered. I was listening to him speak at a conference and he made this statement, Steve saying he's still alive. He said, why is it, why is it that we insist that every chapter has to be good when God promises only in that last chapter that he will make all the other chapters make sense? What he says to this church is like, hey, it's 10 days, which means it's never going to make sense. It may never make sense in the present, but it's going to in the end because the first and the last is still standing and his picture is in the final chapter of history. What you've got now in the present is the Jesus who stands above the church as the first and the last with nail-scarred hands, who promises to work all things for good. The question is, is he enough? Because Jesus' admonition to be faithful means realize that when he says that, there are other ways for you to escape suffering and other ways for you to find comfort. Just as Jesus says, I will always make a way of escape from temptation, our enemy always offers another route to escape from suffering. For many, it's going to happen through moral compromise. You know, each month, each month in the United States, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry due to moral moral failure or spiritual burnout. 50% of pastors' marriages, 50% will end in divorce. 40% of current pastors say they've engaged in some kind of inappropriate relationship since beginning their ministry. Tragically and ironically, the pastor who first shared these statistics with me is now out of the ministry. I would even dare say that some of you listening to me right now are on the brink of this. Our enemy will always make a way of escape through moral compromise. He may offer a way of escape through doctrinal compromise. Conforming the message so it's more palatable to the world. Whether that's the MSNBC crowd or the Fox News crowd. Pastoring next to UNC Chapel Hill, I am continually told, well, if Christianity doesn't change its views on sexuality or gender identity, it's going to die. Can't survive it in the next generation. One guy told me, just straight up, if you don't change your convictions on complementarianism, you're going to be irrelevant and have to shut your doors by the end of the decade. A popular Christian leader told me that. In the next few verses, Jesus is going to describe the church at Pergamum as faithful in just about every way. They were generous to the poor. They had solid theology. It was just that they tolerated those who taught and practiced sexual immorality. But because they compromised on that one thing, gender, Jesus removed his presence from that church. People say, you know, if you don't soften your stance on this, you're going to lose people. I don't know about you. I would rather lose the approval of a culture full of people than the presence of Jesus any day. It was a a lesbian couple who started to attend our church a few years ago. And um, make a long story really short, one of them just got saved. Actually, one one of them came by themselves and uh, came to our Apex campus. And she just, I mean, she got born again. I don't know the way to say it. She got born again. She comes to my office and she says, my wife refuses to come. She said she looked up um, 
on the internet after I found out, I told her I found God at this church, Summit Church, I, I, and she said, no way. They, those people don't like us. They don't approve of us. They're bigots. I'm not going to that church. So she said she, she tried to make me compromise, and we were going to find God um, at this other church where they were affirming. And so it was a church in downtown Raleigh. We started to go there. They accepted our, our lifestyle. They affirmed us. She said, I looked at her for three weeks, and I said to my wife, she's married to this um, woman, she said, I said to her, God ain't in this church. And you and I got to choose between the presence of God or these people's approval, and I'm going to take the presence of God. She said, we need to pray for my wife. Um, so I'm, I'm like, there's all kinds of problems right now with this conversation, but absolutely, let's pray for this lady's salvation. And um, so we pray, and uh, this sounds like I'm making this story up. I promise you I'm not. Um, so after about six months, uh, one day into the, the campus I was preaching at, um, the wife of this one comes in, sits in the second row. I'd never seen her in church. She'd never been in church. Just, I found out later, this is her first week there. She comes in, sits down in the second row. I, I learned this story later. Because she comes um, to my office, make a long story short, she comes to my office later and says, first time I've ever been to church, she said, um, you stood up and you opened your Bible and you said, today we're going to talk about same-sex attraction. Now, I promise you guys, I have, one time in five years, I've preached on that subject, like the whole sermon. That was the day she chose to come. She sat right in. She said, I pulled out my notebook and I was like, this is it. I knew it bunch of bigots they're just going to see a bunch of irrational things and i'm just going to write down all the hateful things that he says so i can show my wife that this is not the church to be a part of and um she no, no i'm gonna put it in her words okay so you got to give me a little grace here she uh she said i sat down there i listened to you start preaching after 10 minutes i didn't have a single thing written down and i said i, I can't use the exact language because it's too colorful i said blank you know dang it she said, this is the most loving anti-gay sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> and then she just burst into tears sitting in my office. And she said, I know what you're saying is true. And she said, I don't know how to get out of the life that we're in. Fast forward the story. They've dissolved the marriage. One of them has been baptized. They're both still a work in progress. But all I want to tell you is, I would take the presence of Jesus walking in the lampstand of the churches over the approval of a culture any day. Because that and that alone has the power to save. So don't compromise. The presence of Jesus is better than the world's acceptance. And don't, don't listen to those people on the right who tell you that unless we link up our movement with the Republican Party that our days are numbered. These people are always appealing to Spurgeon's downgrade controversy as if they knew the first thing about it. Spurgeon's downgrade controversy had nothing to do with alignment with the Tory or the Whig party. Read the stuff. He never mentions that. To be clear, I've got my own political convictions. I think they're important. I'm pretty confident they're right. I vote in every single election, and I will always speak up without apology for things like the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, religious freedom, all forms of justice and righteousness. But I refuse to let our gospel or our Great Commission get seconded into some important but lesser political agenda. In the last chapter of Revelation, salvation doesn't come riding in on the back of a donkey or an elephant. It comes through the nail-scarred palms of the Lamb of God. So friend, be faithful. Because if you're faithful, all the way to the point of death, God will give you the crown of life 
which is not just a reward for the future, it's a reward in the present. A life that is experienced not just in eternity, but in the people that you are called to lead and pastor in your generation. Let me close with this. One of the men who would have read this letter, the original version of it, the first version of it was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And Polycarp would have been in his 20s when John wrote the book of Revelation. He was from the church in Smyrna and would later become its bishop. What he was known for is he would not compromise. 86 years old, they came because he would not bow his knee to the emperor. And and the Jews were all riled up against him, trying to get him in trouble. They came to take him. They say he went very calmly. He asked for a few moments, in fact, to pray for the people that were coming to take him and burn him at the stake. He stood in front of this gigantic amphitheater filled with people there in Smyrna who said the proconsul said to him proconsul said to him reproach christ reproach christ and i will release you polycarp famously said 86 years have i served him and never once did he wrong me how then could i blaspheme my blaspheme my king who has saved me only swear said the proconsul to the power of caesar polycarp responded i swear to the power of one much greater than caesar give me a day just give me a day and i will teach you of him the proconsul responded, I will tame you by fire since you despise the wild beast. Polycarp then looked at the crowd and said, you think I'm afraid of this fire? It burns for just a minute and then it's gone. You ought to be afraid, proconsul, of the fires of hell. I'm not scared of these temporary flames. Come on, boys, bring on the fire. Eusebius, a church historian, records that it was Jews from Smyrna who were not actually Jews in the language of this letter who brought the wood to burn polycarp at the stake according to one person there the fire formed a circle around polycarp but his body did not burn the proconsul then ordered a soldier nearby to stab polycarp with a spear and when he did the witness said the blood extinguished the flames now whether or not that last part is true i have no way of knowing What I do know is it provides a powerful image of the church and the world. It is the blood of our faithful suffering that puts out the fires of hell. In our community, in our church, in eternity, be faithful and in time you will overcome. Most of you will not be burned at the stake, but you will be tested to see if you're going to hold on to Jesus in the face of temptations to quit or to compromise. Don't do it. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Be faithful. Because our Jesus is still walking through these candle stands and there's still 6,400 unreached people groups in the world. And that's where he wants to take you. Forget about CNN. Forget about MSNBC. Forget about the White House. Forget about Fox News. You focus on those unreached people groups. And you let the power of Jesus surge through you and to the end. And you will receive the crown of life. Why don't you bow your heads with me, if you would. Father, I pray for courage in the midst of suffering, suffering on a big scale. God, when they mock us and they blaspheme us and they tear down our reputation in the papers and on blog sites and on Twitter handles, God, I pray for faithfulness in the small things when we're disappointed by a family member, when we've got pain in our body that just won't go away, when we've got a relationship that is turned on us that we don't understand why. 
Help us to receive all these things as good from your hand, that come from your hand, from a God who said that you are our shepherd and we will never have any needs, who said that even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid because I'm with you and I'll make goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. Give us confidence to rest in that shepherd. I pray, I pray right now for those, God, who are struggling, lift up their eyes to rest in the palms of the one who is dead and is now alive and who is the first and the last. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.com. Thank you.